everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you with an all-new episode. This time, we're going to Georgia. hey But before we start, I would just like to thank everyone that's reached out to us to share their thoughts or case suggestions to us. And if you have a case suggestion or just want to introduce yourself and say hi from whatever part of the world you're from, you can do so through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes, all of our resources that we use to bring you our episodes because you want to give credit where credit is due. And also on there, we do have a contact page. You can also go to our Facebook group, Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Insta page at Criminal Dispod, D-I-S-P-O-D. We have a Twitter at Criminal Pod and a YouTube channel. So lots of means to get a hold of us. Well, we're not going to dally. We're going to get to this right away. Like I said, we're going to Georgia, specifically Marietta, Georgia located in Cobb County, one of the largest suburbs of Atlanta. Now, one of its famous landmarks is the Big Chicken. It is a 56-foot-tall steel structure in the shape of a chicken, which happens to be rising out of the Kentucky Fried Chicken Restaurant. And you can Google that. It is massive. I'm Googling it right. It is very big. You're right. It is massive. They actually (laughs) redid it. I think they had to, I don't know if they took it down, repainted it, restructured it, but the chicken is still there. Wow. Famous citizens who hail from Cobb County include country singer Travis Tritt and actor Robert Patrick from the Terminator 2 movies. He's made many other movies, but I think that's one of his more famous roles. I have to just say... I love the Terminator movies. Robert Patrick is iconic. He is. And I love the trip. I don't know. You're making me want to go to Georgia. That's weird. (laughs) It's a fun state. (laughs) Got a lot of cool people. So on the evening of November 29th, 1992, 39-year-old Sarah Tokars and her two young children, Mike, age six, and Rick, age two, were coming back from Sarah's parents' house in Florida. Now, the family, including her husband, Fred Tokars, had spent the Thanksgiving holiday there. Now, Fred Tokars was a lawyer, and he had left on Saturday to return home for business, so Sarah and the boys had driven back home. So when Sarah turned into the driveway of their Marietta residence that evening, the house was completely dark. So Sarah and Mike got out of the vehicle, leaving Rick asleep in the back seat. So they were going to unload the car and then come back for Rick, only to be met by a man in the house. This man had a gun and forced both Sarah and Mike back into the vehicle and told her to drive. The man had put a gun to Sarah's head and told her to drive towards the city, which would be Atlanta, but then directed her to turn off into an empty cul-de-sac. Sarah refused, and she begged the man to let her children go and to not hurt them. So in the next moment, the man shot Sarah in the back of the head, grabbed her purse, and took off running. Mike, who was in the front seat, had reached over his mother's body to turn off the ignition to stop the car from moving. My gosh. So Mike then got out of the car, got Rick out of the back seat, and they ran across a field to the nearest neighbor's house. So they had just seen lights in the distance and took off running. And he got the neighbor's attention and told him someone had hurt their mom. He also asked that someone call his grandfather in Florida because he was a doctor and he could make his mom better. That's amazing for a six-year-old to do all that. Yes. And then what a big heart. So police descended upon the crime scene on Powers Road, and there they found Sarah Tokars slumped over the steering wheel. The shooter had been sitting directly behind her in the back seat, but had left no evidence behind. 
Mike described the shooter to detectives. He said he was a black man wearing jeans, a sweatshirt, and a toboggan hat. The gun he was carrying, he said, looked like a pirate's gun that you would see in the movies. So from that description, detectives believed that the murder weapon might have been a sawed-off shotgun. And there were no fingerprints, fibers, or foreign hairs found in the vehicle or on Sarah. Wow. So they had very little to go on except for this description. So after running the plates of the vehicle, authorities were able to track down family members who could take custody of the boys. And next, they worked on getting hold of Fred Tokars to inform him his wife had been murdered. Now, he had been located at a hotel later that evening out of state. So Fred, as I said, was a lawyer. He had left Georgia on Saturday for a meeting with a client who was being held in a Montgomery, Alabama prison. So while Fred made his way back to Georgia, detectives went to the Tokar's residence to begin processing the scene there. In the living room, detectives found a security dowel lying on the floor that looked like it went to the sliding glass door. You know, those ones you put in the base to keep the door from opening. Yeah. So they also found that the security system had not been turned on. So at this point, detectives theorized that perhaps Sarah had surprised a burglar who wasn't expecting anyone to be home. Again, kind of that Thanksgiving holiday. But unfortunately, no trace evidence was left behind in the home either. Still nothing. Still nothing. So when Fred returned home, he agreed to meet with detectives to be interviewed. Now, at the interview, he had his defense attorney present because he knew he would be looked at as the first suspect. That's common knowledge. The Those closest to the victim are looked at. And he was an attorney, so he wanted someone there to protect his rights. So detectives were concerned that possibly one of Fred's clients might have been involved in Sarah's murder. Now, Fred was a criminal defense attorney whose clients were involved in drug trafficking and were potentially dangerous. So Fred told detectives that he and Sarah had a good marriage and he would do anything to find out who did this to her. And Fred agreed to walk detectives through their home, explaining that when he left on Saturday for Alabama, he had turned all the lights off. He had locked the doors. He made sure the security rod was in place. And he admitted he did not turn on the alarm because a plumber was scheduled to fix the water heater over the weekend. So Fred next took detectives to the basement where he had his home office. And he told detectives that the office safe he thought usually held about $1,500 in cash, but wasn't sure if there were $1,500 in cash in there. But it was open and empty when he came home. So with Fred's alibi confirmed, detectives continued to look and follow other leads. They weren't really sure where to go. There's no physical evidence. There's no video. They think this is a possibly robbery gone wrong, maybe done by one of Fred's clients, but they don't have a lot to go on until the next day when a major lead is delivered to them. So one of Sarah's sisters and a cousin came to the station and gave them something Sarah had taken from Fred's basement office. She told them that if anything ever happened to her, they had to promise to take this information to police. Sarah's sister and cousin informed detectives that Sarah wanted a divorce, but Fred would always threaten her that he would use his legal connections to make sure he won sole custody of the boys. They claimed that Sarah knew she needed some leverage to use against her husband, so she made copies of the information she found and gave it to them for safekeeping. Fred. Oh, that's why those closest to you are always looked at. So the documents handed over were a list of various offshore bank accounts and corporations set up by Fred for his clients. Now, these offshore accounts were located, some of them were located in the Bahamas and Turks and Caicos. So the Cobb County authorities, realizing they needed some assistance to wade through all of this financial information, notified the FBI field office in Atlanta. 
Special Agent Mike Twybell reviewed Fred's financial documents, and examining the various corporations Tokar set up, Agent Twybell realized they all had in-name-only ownership, which means that in-name-only owners were not really the real owners of the corporations. They were perhaps dummy corporations used for money laundering, usually involving drug trafficking. Fred. So let's talk a little bit about Sarah. Sarah was Sarah Ambrusco, and she was one of seven sisters, originally from Buffalo, New York, and her parents were John and Phyllis Ambrusco. Sarah is described by those that knew her as having a sunny personality and being a hard worker. Now, before reconnecting with Fred Tokars, Sarah worked as a marketing director for the trendy perimeter nightclub in the Atlanta area. And it was one day while she was watching the news that Sarah first saw Fred Tokars, and she remembered Fred from their time in high school, as they were both from the Buffalo area. And on an impulse, she called him. Now, Fred at the time was a junior prosecutor for the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, and he was second chair on a murder trial. And that's when Sarah had seen him on TV. So that first call led to a date. And then a simple ceremony in front of Judge John Langford in his chambers the following year. This would be Sarah's second marriage. Her first marriage was to a fitness club owner whom she had met on the beach in Florida. So her family originally from Buffalo moved to Florida. She meets her first husband while walking on the beach. And so after they married, they relocated to the Atlanta area because that's where his business was. And for a time, she worked as the aerobics instructor for her husband's club until that marriage ended due to her husband's infidelity. Now, Sarah and one of her sisters moved in together into the Dunwoody condominiums when she had reconnected with Fred Tokars. Now, Fred Tokars is described as tall, slender, but not classically handsome. This was in an article I read, but more of having a sensitive face. So if you Google pictures of Fred Tokars, it's pretty fitting. Tokars had been working as an accountant before earning his law degree by attending night school. So people who worked with Fred would describe him as a, quote, habitual self-promoter, unquote. Tokars told anyone who would listen he he was an expert in white-collar and computer fraud crimes. He even gave seminars to local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies on money laundering. Again, his accounting background and then his law degree. I'm going to say, I googled him, he looks more like an accountant than a lawyer. He could think that. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So when Fred began dating Sarah, he would regale both her and her sister with tales of cases he had worked on, making himself the star of the show. Fred also didn't make it a secret of wanting to break into politics and work as a tax attorney for the Atlanta elite. Now, Sarah would have been an asset for Fred because, again, of her charming personality, her good looks. She was gorgeous. She's gorgeous. And her business contacts through her job. Like when she worked at the fitness gym from her first marriage, that was a pretty famous gym that had a lot of celebrity clients, including the Atlanta Falcons football team. What? So she she had some contacts through that. And then, of course, working in nightclub promotions, she worked for a pretty trendy nightclub. So she had contacts through that. So she would have been an asset to him, especially looking to move maybe into politics or set up those elite clients. Yeah. So in one article I read, Sarah, who was 30 at this time, wanted out of the late night lifestyle of club promotions. She wanted to settle down and have a family. And she thought Fred had similar thoughts on family and children. But one red flag early in the couple's relationship is that Sarah's family didn't feel that Tokars was very attentive towards her, as he often worked late or was out of town on business, and they rarely ate dinner together. Mm. So she was 
even though newly married in that newlywed phase, he wasn't around a lot. He wasn't acting like a newlywed. Correct. And that could have been, again, he's trying to build his own business. And we'll get to that in a moment. Within a month of their I do's, Sarah was pregnant with their first of two children. Michael Philip Tokars, who went by Mike, they actually call him Mikey in a lot of articles, was born on April 20th, 1988. The couple had also purchased a home in Kings Cove, an affluent subdivision close to the Atlanta Country Club. Now, Sarah continued to work while she was pregnant, but hoped to quit and be a stay-at-home mom to their baby. Fred rejected that idea. So after Mike was born, Sarah, who was always kind of described as the peacemaker in the family, okay, how can I make this work? She worked half days in the office and the rest of the job she did at home while taking care of a newborn. Wow. I feel like if my husband was an up-and-coming Atlanta elite lawyer, I would be able to stay at home. Hmm. Keep that thought. (laughs) If I I wanted to. Keep that thought. (laughs) Now, fortunately for Sarah, the nightclub business in Atlanta took a nosedive due to stiffer drunk driving laws that came out and the two-for-one drink offers at happy hours being banned. What? So I don't know if this was a just an Atlanta thing or a Georgia thing to cut down on drunk drivers that they were possibly seeing. And again, I think nationally drunk driver laws went into effect, became stiffer, and then of course, cutting off the happy hour. And it was also around this time of HIV and AIDS being heightened. Mm. So Sarah was let go from her job when the club she had been promoting had to fire workers due to declining profits. So Sarah kind of got her wish to stay home full time with her new baby. Kind of nice. So it was also around this time that Fred decided to leave the DA's office and open his own practice. He began first working on criminal defenses and then expanded into tax fraud and divorce cases. Fred had rented office space from Murray Silver, another criminal defense attorney. And according to Silver's, Tokars was always working to make fast money. So Fred didn't share with Sarah much about how his new practice was going or the clients he had taken on. Although Sarah knew her husband's clients often paid in cash and she was worried that money was dirty. Mm -hmm. Other troubles began to emerge in their marriage. The home that they had purchased was not a new build and needed some repairs, repairs that Fred wasn't willing to spend money on. With Sarah's loss of salary, Fred took complete control over the family finances and gave Sarah a weekly allowance. She was not permitted to have her own checking account or credit cards. Fred insisted that everything be bought in cash. Now, anytime Sarah inquired about their finances, Fred shut her down. Now, I will say, I did read an article that when they got married, Sarah came with some debt. Mm -hmm. So in Fred's view, this was his way to kind of take control of that. So they didn't continue to spiral in debt. But it also gives you a lot of red flags, him controlling all the finances, him giving her an allowance and him, you know, basically controlling everything. An allowance like a child. And as if she's not doing anything like, dude, she's taking care of your home. She's raising your kids. Right. Come on. Right. I think it was a pretty, I will be fair. I think it was a pretty significant, one article I read said $400 a week. But everything has to go through him. Everything. Like like he's her dad. Yes. I don't like you, Fred. (laughs) Hold hold that thought. I'll like him less soon. (laughs) So Fred also forbade Sarah from entering his basement office. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. So he also began objecting to Sarah visiting her family in Bradenton, Florida, even though he would often go with her when they went. However, Sarah and Mike would have to make the nine-hour drive to her parents' home while Fred always flew. Now, 
In all fairness, again, I couldn't find a reason for the separate travel plans. That being said, you know, was Sarah afraid to fly? I can respect that. You know, everyone who's listened to this podcast for a while knows I'm not a flyer. I don't fly, yeah. And would have rather drove? Or did Fred only want to pay for one ticket? This, of course, is back when it was actually cheaper to drive than fly. (laughs) Possibly, yes. So we don't know if that, what the reason was. So just trying to be fair here. (laughs) In all fairness to a jerk. (laughs) I know people aren't liking Fred. We're very diplomatic here. We try to be. It was after their second child, Rick, who went by Ricky, was born that Fred's behavior took a more physical turn. Sarah would tell a friend who had invited the couple to a party that he was hosting that they could not attend. And at first she said she wasn't feeling well. But then she told him, quote, I can't come because I have bruises on my left arm and side where Fred beat me, unquote. And she begged this friend not to say anything, especially to Fred. So by 1988, Fred began taking steps into the world of Atlanta politics. He served as the campaign treasurer for a state judge, and Fred himself was appointed as a part-time judge by Mayor Andrew Young. He also gave generous donations to various political campaigns. And it was in 1989 that Sarah believed that Fred was having an affair and hired a private detective to verify her beliefs. Remember, Sarah's first marriage had ended in divorce and infidelity. Sarah also sought out some legal advice once the P.I. confirmed that Fred was having an affair. She wanted a divorce. Now, Fred's next move was to form a partnership with a defense attorney using that new relationship as proof that he had means to get full custody of their boys. Oh, my gosh. So keep in mind, Sarah doesn't have money of her own. She doesn't have a checking account or a credit card. She's not working. So she's kind of stuck. He holds all the cards in this. So it was due to Fred's political and legal connections that Sarah knew. Her chances for getting custody, she needed to have some leverage against him. And that is when she broke the rule about going to Fred's basement office. Sarah had contacted the PI she had hired, and he had come over one day, and she showed him what she found, these financial records, and she also found prescription drugs in his safe. Apparently, she found the code to get in the safe. Fred didn't hide it very well. She wanted the PI to make copies of this information, but he refused due to legal issues in terms of taking that information out of the home. That makes sense. Right. But he instead, he told her, Sarah, you can make copies and give them to someone you trust. He also told her, hey, call the doctor on the prescription bottle and find out exactly what these medications were for. This is kind of pre-Google, so you're not able to just kind of type it in and look it up. Right. Sarah then told the PI that if anything were to happen to her, he had her permission to turn over to authorities any information he had gathered on Fred. So at the beginning of November 1992, and this is approximately three weeks before Sarah's murder, federal authorities had begun investigating clients of Fred Tokars on allegations of drug trafficking and money laundering. Now, Sarah didn't know this. Fred was viewed as a potential witness initially instead of a suspect, but... He soon turned into a suspect. He was being looked at for managing the drug proceeds and setting up dummy corporations for money laundering purposes. Now, when Fred was initially interviewed by police after his wife's murder, he admitted that several of his clients had a reputation as alleged drug dealers. He informed detectives that one of his clients had been forced out of the Atlanta area by another drug dealing client. The first client returned to the Detroit area only to be shot dead outside of his mother's house. The handgun used to kill him was traced back to a North Atlanta gun shop. And actually, this gun was found in a dumpster not far from the shooting. (laughs) 
So your last case when you said, I don't know how common that is to find the discarded weapon at the scene. Apparently, that's why they <laughs> that's why they uh, look at dumpsters. Step one. So Fred told detectives that possibly the murder of his wife was to send a message to him about keeping his mouth shut. Because, again, these are both of his clients, the murdered client and the one suspected of the murder. Mm-hmm. Detectives obtained a search warrant for the tow car's residence, and along with Internal Revenue Service agents, IRS agents, they searched for any evidence confirming Fred's involvement in illegal drug trafficking and money laundering. Though no direct proof of a connection was found, what was discovered was that money Fred had in his own offshore bank accounts didn't match what he claimed on his taxes. Oh, so you're getting in trouble either way here. Correct. We have a lot more to this story. But we're going to take a quick break to bring you a special offer from our sponsor. Here at Criminal Discourse, we are excited to tell you about our partnership with Manscaped. Manscaped is a male grooming company. And let's face it, you're probably wondering why a woman is talking about Manscaped. Listen, I don't have balls. But if I did, I'd want to make sure the products I use down in the Fertile Crescent region are going to do the job. Do it efficiently. Do it effectively. And make sure it doesn't leave any irritation behind. And those products are Manscaped. Check them out today and use our code CDE20. That's 20% off using our code CDP20. And you get free shipping. So if you're looking for that unique gift for someone special in your life, or you want to up your own grooming game, check out Manscaped today. Go to manscaped.com or any of the social media platforms and put in at Manscaped and you can check out the products for yourself. Again, don't forget to use our code CDP20. And as Manscaped claims, your balls will thank you. Now back to our episode. So more trouble lay ahead for Fred when in August 1992, one of his clients, Anthony Brown, an alleged cocaine dealer, was arrested. The day before Brown's arrest, law enforcement authorities had intercepted a drug courier in Texas with over 100 kilos of cocaine. (sighs) So this bus was traced to Brown's organization. So when he was arrested in Atlanta, authorities found in the trunk of his car over $49,000 in cash, two digital beepers, and weekly financial reports from the Diamond and Pearls Club. So in looking at the corporation documents for Diamonds and Pearls, Brown wasn't listed as the owner. Someone else was in name only. So authorities now believe that Fred had bought the club and other area nightclubs for his drug dealing clients to use as a front for laundering drug proceeds. And that Fred was also a member of the corporations he had set up. He liked making that quick money. So I did a little research. I don't know a lot about money laundering. One, because I've never money laundered. (laughs) So there are many different ways to launder money, which is taking basically illegitimate funds, drug dealing funds, let's say, and washing them to make them legal because drug dealers can't go out and say, hey, I'm going to purchase this house. Here's all cash kind of thing. People are going to be like, where'd you get that money since you don't have a job on paper kind of thing. There has to be some legitimacy to your transactions. So there are three steps taken in money laundering. The first involves placing ill-gotten money into a legitimate financial institution. In Fred's case, he bought cash incentive businesses such as, they call them nightclubs, Let's face it, they're strip clubs. And these are service-oriented businesses that usually generate lots of cash revenue, especially at this time. 
Credit cards weren't the common way to pay for things. Ooh. So do we think maybe it's getting harder to launder money in the digital currency age? I don't know. Again, not an expert. Putting that in my little think tank for another time. (laughs) The second step in the process is called layering, where you camouflage or mix in illegal money with legal proceeds. So the final step is integration, where illegal money has been run through a business, it has been taken to the bank, and then removed from a financial institution, thereby cleaned. So for example, how this worked with Fred's clients is that the strip club was a primarily, again, cash business, especially in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. So let's say the club made $10,000 in revenue over one weekend, but the money delivered to the bank and put on the financial books was $20,000. So now $10,000 has been cleaned. For authorities, it was difficult to detect discrepancies with cash businesses because how are they to know what was taken over the weekend or not? You just need someone who works at the club who writes down the correct kind of... Right. Yeah, fudge in the books. Correct. And other businesses they talked about would be like a laundromat or a car wash or a parking lot, right? Late 80s, early 90s was more cash businesses. So detectives began to re-interview the tow car's neighbors in the weeks after Sarah's murder. One neighbor told detectives that Sarah was afraid of her husband and wanted a divorce. So the neighbor and Sarah had talked a week and a half prior to her death with Sarah sharing that she had proof of Fred's criminal activity and she felt that she now had the leverage she needed to use against him and she felt protected by having this information in hand. Detectives theorized that perhaps Sarah had confronted Fred that, hey, I know this. I got proof. You're going to give me what I want if you don't grant me a divorce and give me custody of the boys. So detectives also got a break when a deputy from Fulton County, who happened to be the brother of an officer working on Sarah's case in Cobb County, gave him the name of businessman Eddie Lawrence, who was age 27 at the time. Eddie had been in business with Fred Tokars and had been arrested recently for writing bad checks on Fred's account. Eddie's primary business was in construction, home renovation, and mortgages. And Fred was a business partner of Eddie in these businesses. So Eddie agreed to meet with detectives after they discovered several calls the day of Sarah's murder between the two men. At the time, Eddie claimed that they were all business related. Seven weeks later, he was singing a different tune after being charged with more serious offenses. Eddie was charged again after the connection was made between him and an alleged shooter. Curtis Rower, age 22, goes by the name Cornbread. Eddie told detectives that Fred had lent him $70,000 and that the business they jointly owned was in financial trouble. Fred had pressured him to either kill Sarah himself or hire a hitman to do the job. Fred gave him $20,000 for the hit. Now, Eddie offered Rower, aka I'm just going to call him Cordbread, $5,000 to commit the murder, which he accepted. So he's given twenty, dollars he pays this guy five, dollars and he keeps fifteen. dollars which he might have had to pay on the $70,000 loan. I didn't figure that all out. So it's Eddie and Freddie. They're in this together. They're Mm -hmm. both grifters and bad guys. So Eddie told detectives that on the day of the murder, Fred had called him twice, saying that he needed someone to come out to fix the water heater. The final call had been in the afternoon after Sarah had called Fred and told him they were on their way home and should arrive home between 9.30, 10 p.m. So three weeks after Sarah's murder, the boyfriend of Curtis Rower's cornbread sister came to authorities, informing them that Curtis was the shooter. That's how they found out that connection. It seemed that Curtis's sister worked for Eddie Lawrence as a secretary. So there's the connection. 
On December 22, 1992, detectives went looking for cornbread in College Park at the home he was rumored to be hiding out in. So when authorities arrived, a woman answered the door telling them she wasn't sure if cornbread was there or not. A search warrant allowed them to search the home and in an upstairs bedroom, hiding under the bed, was cornbread. Cornbread confirmed for detectives that he had been offered 5000 to, quote, get rid of the white lady who was standing in the way of a lot of money, unquote. On the night of the murder, Eddie Lawrence had driven him out to the tow car residence and dropped him off to await for her arrival. Rower claims that he had been inside the house for over an hour. Shortly before 10 p.m., Sarah pulled into the driveway and exited the vehicle. And she didn't get far as Rower confronted her and Mike and forced them back into the car. Rower said he sat directly behind Sarah with the sawed-off shotgun pointed to the back of her head. Now, Cornbread claims that he thought Eddie had taken off on him and abandoned him. So that's why he wanted Sarah to drive him back to Atlanta. Cornbread stated that Sarah pleaded with him not to hurt her kids or her. About a half mile from her home, Cornbread ordered her to turn down a darkened street into that empty cul-de-sac. Instead, Sarah pulled off the road and Cornbread would tell the police that Sarah offered him her purse and car if they just let him get out. Cornbread claimed that it was then that Eddie Lawrence appeared outside the back passenger window and grabbed the gun, ordering him to shoot Sarah. Cornbread then said the gun went off, but he didn't fire it. Eddie did. And then they both took off, leaving Sarah dead with the two young frightened boys in the slowly moving vehicle. Detectives didn't believe Cornbread's claims that Eddie was present outside the car, as Mike had already told them that there was only one man who shot his mom. No, and I can't believe that somebody named Cornbread didn't leave some kind of physical evidence in the car or the home. (laughs) I assumed he had gloves on. Yeah. So Cornbread was charged with first-degree murder, and Eddie Lawrence was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. But he would not confirm Cornbread's story initially. So again, him being there, dropping him off and or grabbing the gun. Fred Tokars was reached at his in-laws home in Florida with the news of the arrest over the Christmas holiday in 1992. So this is like a month later. He's with the boys down at Sarah's parents' house. Now, Sarah's parents were relieved, but to them, Fred seemed despondent. It was when authorities couldn't reach Fred that his father-in-law went to the hotel he was staying at and found him unresponsive. Fred had taken a handful of sleeping pills in a suicide attempt, even leaving behind an apology note about how his lifestyle had affected his family. Fred was rushed to the hospital and revived. Now, you can read this note. It's in the show notes in one of the articles. Okay, it's... (laughs) Pathetic. He, it's it, it. That's a good word to describe it. I don't know of any other way to describe <laughs> it. He's just kind of blaming his lifestyle. Oh, take whatever money's left and and pay for you know the kids' college and take care of them. And oh, you can pay for your kids' college, like his nieces and nephews too. And I'm so sorry that my lifestyle, you know, my clients did this. I never wanted this to happen. It was your choices, bro. It was you, right? Ugh. The media coverage in Atlanta was intense over the arrest and the rumors that Fred Tokars was somehow involved in his wife's murder. So to evade coverage, Fred and the boys moved to Florida with the boys staying primarily with his in-laws. So Eddie Lawrence took a plea deal after seven months telling both federal and state authorities all he knew about the money laundering business Fred had set up. He also told them about his connection to Sarah's murder that had been planned several months before the actual event. Fred had come to Eddie pressuring him about repaying the $70,000 loan to him, telling him if he didn't help him out, he would destroy his life. Eddie claims he initially refused, not wanting to be part of the plot to kill Sarah. He told Fred to 
just give her a divorce. You know, you'll make up the money. You have these money laundering businesses. Don't kill someone. Just give her a divorce. Give her what she wants. But Fred said he didn't want to give her anything because he had earned it all, not her. Eddie also claimed that Fred offered him $25,000 in cash and an additional $910,000 from Sarah's various life insurance policies. In all, Sarah had $1.7 million in life insurance that she had not been aware of. So that's why he can't just give her a divorce. <laughs> Correct. Fred didn't want his kids hurt, however, but he didn't care if it happened in front of them or not. According to Eddie, Fred said that they were young and they would get over it. Eddie Lawrence pleaded guilty to federal charges of counterfeiting and aiding and abetting in a murder. He received a 12 and a half year prison sentence and was accepted into the Federal Witness Protection Program after he served his 12 and a half years. So knowing this information, authorities knew that they needed to arrest Fred, but were concerned and wanted to make sure they did so out of the presence of his children. Even though they weren't primarily living with him, he did have contact with them and did have them over at his new place because they weren't sure how he was going to react. He already tried to commit suicide. So detectives decided to lure Fred out of his condominium by pretending to be reporters. Fred had already confronted various reporters that had shown up on his property, having called the police to remove them. So they knew, OK, let's pretend to be them and get him out of the house. And Fred took the bait and he came outside once local police arrived who were in on this act. And he was promptly arrested once he left his condominium. Good. Fred Tokar's once a highly connected lawyer with political aspirations in Georgia was now indicted on federal racketeering crimes in addition to crimes that involved the murder of his wife. He received life without the possibility of parole from his federal trial in 1994, and he would be tried again by the state of Georgia in January 1997. The Cobb County District Attorney was going for the death penalty yeah. on this case. Now, the jury did find him guilty with malice, but they declined to sentence him to death. So he received another life without the possibility of parole sentence. So once he would do his federal time, which was forever, if he would live forever, he would then go to the state, I guess. For more forever. I guess maybe they declined on the death penalty because he didn't actually commit the murder. He put it in place, though. He paid for it. Mm. So with Fred serving his two sentences, both federal and state, Cornbread also was convicted. He did not get the death penalty. He got life without the possibility of parole. So the only one that really got a good deal was Eddie Lawrence. Kind of the middleman. I don't. Right. Maybe you should just divorce her. I don't actually want to do the killing, but I will get someone else to do it. I'll take him there. Right. So he did 12 and a half years and then went into the Federal Witness Protection Program. On May 13, 2000, Fred Tokars died in Federal Prison Hospital in Pennsylvania. Oh. He died of natural causes at the age of 67, having suffered from neurological issues for years. According to his attorney, Fred had used a wheelchair for the last 10 years of his life. Fred was actually held in secret custody within the federal system. They didn't even put him on the list as being a federal inmate in that prison. Wow. As Fred had agreed to work with authorities as a jailhouse informant. Of course he did. He's a snake. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be informant, but Fred is just a snaky dude. Well, I'm sure he got some concessions for being so. Yes. So crimes, and we've talked about this, especially with the last case of Columbine, they don't happen in a vacuum, especially murder. Sarah's sons had their share of struggles in the aftermath of their mother's murder at the hands of their father. Mike Tokars, he would go on to earn his master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Years later, he would write a story on the 20th anniversary of his mother's murder for the 
Atlanta Journal-Constitution. His article highlighted how he and his brothers were raised by their loving grandparents and six amazing aunts in Florida. Unfortunately, Mike suffered from depression and post-traumatic stress disorder due to the trauma he experienced as a child, and it was in April 2020 Mike would pass away from a pulmonary embolism at the age of 31 after driving out to California to reinvent himself after his journalism career floundered. So he tried to break into journalism, and that's hard to do. And he had some success, but it wasn't consistent. And again, the childhood trauma, he got depressed. And he thought, okay, I'm going to start over in California. And an aunt out there, he was heading towards. And they said he was a pretty big guy. Like his dad's tall. So he was pretty tall. He had gotten a dog and he was driving across country. However, he was doing it during COVID. Mm-hmm. So like not a lot of hotels were open. He was isolated. And they said from the driving for sitting for such long periods of time, that's what may have caused the blood clots behind his knees. They don't mention him having COVID, but he wasn't in good health. And then he went into the hospital and of course the pulmonary embolism. Well, and they say too with childhood trauma, when it's either extremely intense or over a prolonged period, you have these collections of health issues that have to do with inflammatory illness, Mm -hmm. you know, allergies, asthma, heart issues, blood. So that's so sad though. 31? 31. And he was such a hero for his little brother. So Rick Tokar still resides in Florida and The only thing I could find is he works as an emergency room technician. Even that is amazing. I know. After what he went through, he probably really doesn't remember. But man, think about that. Okay, so Rick is still living. His brother died Mm -hmm. after trying, you know, 2020. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who remembered it. His His dad dies the next month in prison. In prison. Mm -hmm. And then his mother's murdered. Yeah. I'm sorry, Rick. (laughs) I know. It's a sad story, but it just goes to show you it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's ripple effects. There's victims. It is a sad story all around. I mean, it sounds like Fred Tokars, he wanted, like that guy said, he wanted fast money. Well, instead of just working hard and building up a a legitimate clientele. He worked for drug dealers and then got involved in drug dealing businesses. And would have this turned out differently had he just given her a divorce? Maybe. He might have done it to somebody else, though. Who knows? Might have. Well, and Sarah, you know, you look at her and she was gorgeous. It's like you don't deserve to not die just because you're good looking. But you look at someone like that and it's like you could have had so many nice guys that she just ended up with these creeps who used her and cheated on her and she Mm -hmm. got into this insane situation with Fred. And she wanted out. Yeah. She, she recognized that. She wanted out and she wanted to have her children. Her children were her world. Yeah. They were absolutely her world. I did read one article before she came to the Atlanta area. In Florida, she actually worked as an elementary school teacher. Oh. And when her boys were young, like the church they were involved in, the church youth group and activity, she was like that mom. She mm-hmm. was there. She was actively engaged. She really enjoyed spending time with young children. And the world, you know, it's a loss because, again, she got involved with a man who cared more about money and was a tightwad. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they talk about how he would not, even though they lived in this affluent neighborhood, mm-hmm. their house was barely decorated. Like he wouldn't even want to purchase furniture. Wouldn't pay for repairs. Wouldn't pay for repairs. Didn't want to purchase furniture. Really was a tightwad when it came to his money, even though he 
he had a lot of it in offshore bank accounts. I think it just goes to show you, too, how women in those situations, I mean, there's a million reasons why you don't just leave, as some people say, you mm-hmm. know, though no, she was being abused. It was that horrible. Why didn't she just go? I mean, there's a million reasons why. But also when you're a mom, the way that you love your kids and the way that you can just focus on that and kind of block everything else out. That's powerful. And that seems like kind of what she was doing. Just she was working on trying to get out, but also just focusing completely on those kids. And she knew too that to get out, she needed some leverage. Mm -hmm. Because he did. He had political connections to judges, to other lawyers, and him himself being a high-powered lawyer in the area, an affluent lawyer. So she knew his word against mine, and he has the money. I don't. Who's going to believe me if I don't have proof? Especially in 1992. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, let us know. Reach out to us through our contact page, through our various social media accounts. And the only thing we'd ask that whatever platform you listen to us on, if you could subscribe, that'd be great. If you could leave us a review, that would be even better. So as we always end the episode, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. So please, let's watch out for one another crazy times. Be kind to one another. Don't launder money. Don't take the easy way to money. (laughs) I would say, you know, there were red flags. Mm -hmm. And we talk about red flags. And the red flags, unfortunately, in this case was what her family was seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, the different modes of travel coming down. What's the reason for that? The how he's not attentive to her. I don't think her family knew about the physical abuse. It's just a sad case. But listen for those red flags. Sometimes it's good to not mind your business and butt in. You could be saving somebody's life. Who knows? All right. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.